What do you do when you find out that someone close to you, someone you know as a family member or a friend, is gay? Justin Lee is here to talk to us about his experience of discovery of his own sexual orientation and how he wrestled with that in the church as well as in his family and personal life. He's written a book about that called Torn and also one about how to talk across the divide when we disagree. Stay tuned for Good God with Justin Lee. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the program, Justin Lee. Justin, glad to have you with us. Glad to be back, thanks. So Justin has uh, been talking with us on a previous episode about uh, his work with Nuance Ministries now. For 20 years or so, he's been doing the hard work of coming to grips with his own sexual identity as a Christian and helping other people come to grips with that in the church uh, because this is a matter of, of great concern in the church in America today, well, worldwide, as sure. a matter of fact. Uh, and everyone wants to be faithful. Everyone wants to do the right thing in yeah. this respect. Uh, but uh, it's important to listen to people's stories, I think, Justin, mm -hmm. as well. And uh, you've written a book called Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from uh, the gays versus Christians debate, and a good bit about this is autobiographical. Yeah. It's, it's not all a memoir, it's also other people's stories, it's also talking about how Christians uh, can move forward together on, on the matter, but uh, I, I'd love to hear you talk briefly about your own experience growing up in the church, coming to grips with who you are, and how you discovered that. Well, <clears throat> so I, I grew up Southern Baptist. I uh, grew up in North Carolina. And for me, you know, I, I've always, um, my faith, my Christian faith has always been at the heart of who I am and how I understand the world. Right. And growing up, I understood that there were certain uh, cultural controversies, theological controversies that people in my church had positions on. Christians like me had, you know, a certain position <laughs> on certain issues. And, right. and um, th these days I would encourage people not to use just the, the broad term homosexuality because I don't think it's super helpful. But at the time, I would have said, well, I know what my position on homosexuality is. Yes. You know, it's a choice. It's a sin. It's my job as a Christian to speak out against it. What I didn't want to face at that time was that from the moment I hit puberty, my attractions, you know, all the other guys were noticing girls and my attractions were exclusively for other guys. And I thought for years that it was something that I would grow out of, that it was just a quirk of, of adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, I considered myself straight. I dated girls. I continued to believe that being gay was a choice and my image of gay men was the farthest thing from who I from who I was is this right. very conservative <laughs> you know bookworm of a Southern Baptist kid right. uh, who got nicknamed God Boy by one of the other uh, kids in school in high school because I was you know the the, uh, the religious one the religious one obnoxiously handing out tracts to everybody yeah. yes uh -huh. um, and so for years I didn't I didn't admit that I was gay I didn't think that I was gay 
And um, it finally got to the point where I was just crying myself to sleep night after night, begging God to change these feelings, to, yes. to, uh, to give me attraction to women mm -hmm. and take away my attraction to men. And, and it wasn't happening. And eventually when I was 18, the light bulb went on and I recognized, oh, this is what people mean when they say gay. They mean someone who's attracted to the same sex. Right. This is not something you can easily talk through with your family and your church uh, yep. to, so 18. Yeah, yes. and this was in the 90s when mm -hmm. the culture was having much less conversation on this than, mm -hmm. than it is now. Right. Um, and so I, I, I recognize that, but even then at first it was it wasn't something that I embraced. It was more like a diagnosis for a disease. It was like you got the gay, yes. and now you got to find the cure to the gay, you know. Right. And um, and as much as I I make light of it a little now, just for the sake of humor, um, it was a serious thing to me. I was mm -hmm. I was deeply depressed about it. I believed still that God was going to make me straight if I found the right ministry, if I trusted Christ enough, mm -hmm. if I mm -hmm. found the right therapy, and that didn't happen. And I started eventually having to face the reality that it looks like I may well be gay for the rest of my life. And that didn't fit my understanding of what it was to be a Christian. Yes. And I knew I wasn't going to abandon my faith. And I found that a lot of the, the Christians I trusted and looked up to, when I told them I was gay and I asked for their advice about what to do, they also assumed that it was a choice and that it was something I could choose not to be. And instead of offering advice and sympathy and support and you know asking to hear more about my story and figuring out how to journey with me, um, they would just lecture me as if I were you know rebelling in some way. And I was the last person in the world to rebel. I was you know trying to I was the the golden child you know I was trying to be the good kid. Right, and I, I was taken by reading your book uh, uh, about the fact that even when you were in college there was a, a, a Christian club that you were part of, yeah. and even when you did have someone listen to your story and really pay attention. Still, at the end of that whole process, it was still, well, I'm sorry, Justin, you can't be part of this group anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's right. I mean, and it was over and over again. Uh, yes. Either I would get uh, you know, kicked out of the group just for being gay, and to be clear, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, an activist of some kind. Right. I wasn't in a relationship or sexually active. I was just admitting this is what I feel, mm -hmm. and I don't know how to not feel it. Yes. And and people had such a, a, a an oppositional approach to that because they were afraid this was like, you know, a, a theological or political statement I was making, right. that that they didn't know how to respond. So either I would get kicked out or I would sort of get pushed to the side, people mm -hmm. would distance themselves from me, and it was incredibly painful. Right. And I've watched a lot of other folks go through that, and ultimately they, they walk away from their faith as a result, That's because right. they don't think they can be both who they are and a mm -hmm. Christian. They don't think they right. can be both honest and a Christian. Yes. And so they can't choose not to be who they are, but they could choose not to be a Christian, and that's the choice they make. Right. So I have um, dedicated the last 20 years of my life to trying to both to minister to folks who find themselves in those positions and to help the rest of the church understand what that feels like, how, how painful that is, and to do a better job, even in the midst of our theological disagreement on issues like marriage, to do a better job of caring for the gay, bi, trans, queer, Christian 
-hmm. who says, this is my experience, this is what I'm going through, mm -hmm. um, and, and really making sure those people are heard and, and feel known and loved um, rather than just treated like an issue uh, or somebody to be uh, pushed away. Right. So we seem to have seen a faster change in people's attitudes in the church about this than any other, sorry, I'm gonna go back to issue, mm -hmm. uh, but difficult moral uh, position uh, than a a any other that I've seen in my lifetime, mm -hmm. right? It took an enormously long time for us to come to grips with whether people who failed in a marriage could have a place of leadership and honor in the church or even be remarried and have a sense of the blessing of God and the congregation. That was uh, decades long. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the shift on this matter seems to have been uh, the fastest, almost lightning pace. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm sure there are many reasons for that. But my sense is that as positive as that move has been, it's been a kind of whiplash for some people in the church as well. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's, that's how it feels to a lot of folks. And um, I think that shows in the way that people talk about uh, worrying about a slippery slope. Yes. Uh, there's yes. this fear that things are changing so quickly, where are they gonna go next? Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of why we've seen this change happen so quickly is that for so long in our history, there have been people who've been gay or bi or trans, but they weren't able to be honest about it. They just yes. suffered in silence. They may have married someone they weren't attracted to, and maybe their spouse always felt like something was wrong and yes. felt like something was wrong with them, and you know their families may have known that something was wrong, but, but they just tried to grin and bear it and, and suffer in silence. And as people in our culture started to come out and say, this is what's going on with me, and, and here's a word to describe it, gay, trans, whatever. It's, it's given a lot of people the courage for the first time to say something that in decades past they wouldn't have said. Right. And a lot of people are finding out that somebody close to them, somebody that they love and, and who they respect and know to be you know, a person of integrity, um, that this is what they're going through. And that, I think, is motivating a lot of people to say, oh, I thought I knew what this was all about, but this image that I had of, of gay people doesn't match what I know of this person who I love. That's right. And in my case, it was myself. <laughs> yeah, but, but right. you know, in my parents' case, it was their son. Yes. In my siblings' case, it was their, their brother. And so um, I think that's part of what's causing this, this uh, shift to happen so quickly because, because it it's that personal connection and people um, are, are, are having to rethink their, um, their image. Of and folks. I also think that less often now do I hear people assuming that if you are gay, that means that you are promiscuous by nature. Right. So um, more and more I think people are recognizing that there their image of gay persons um, being in the bathhouses and you know <laughs> trolling from one partner to another or whatever um, that that that's really 
uh, first of all, a very narrow slice of a history of gay people in, in America that they've known. Mm. Uh, and second, it's also partly the product of a culture of silence and shame that has produced, that produced for a long time unhealthy relationships because of the inability to have open and healthy ones. Right, sure. Well, you imagine if, uh, if marriage uh, did not exist in our culture, yes. mm -hmm. and if heterosexual men and heterosexual women uh, were forced to pretend not to have sexual feelings, yes. uh, you would very quickly see a culture of uh, private uh, sort of illicit affairs happening as, mm -hmm. as you know, people tried to find a way to deal with uh, mm -hmm. uh, what they were feeling and it wouldn't be a healthy approach. But it's true, when I, when, when I first told people that I was gay, one of the things that was so frustrating was that uh, I felt like whenever I came out to a Christian, I had to always assure them that I was not sexually active. And I thought, boy, what, what straight guy my age has to yes. always say, you know, every, in every conversation, by the way, let me tell you about how I'm not sexually active. Right. Like that's, you know, right. I, and I felt like I had to <laughs> just always reassure people. And I thought, boy, I feel like I'm sharing so much per personal information with people <laughs> every day. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think it would be helpful uh, to spend a little time uh, we're going to take a break here in a moment, um, but when we come back, I, I think there are a lot of people who, by instinct, Justin, they, they want to be able to say as Christians, I hear what you're saying, mm -hmm. and I want to be one of those people who says yes to you and not no, mm -hmm. uh, that says yes to my gay friends and family members, uh, but I have this worry that I'm going against the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be helpful for us to spend a little time just hitting some of the key passages and talking through that. So when we come back from the break, let's do some of that work together, okay? Sure. Great. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons, a nonprofit organization that I founded in 2018 to promote the common good. Think of a commons on a campus and how you can bring all your faith and people from all corners of the campus together. Think of the city that way. Think of the country that way. Faith Commons aims to bring people together to promote greater understanding and peace throughout our communities. You can find more information about it at faithcommons.org. We're back with Justin Lee. And Justin, we've been talking about how to interpret the Bible in a way that is not simply uh, having it say what we want it to say, yeah. but trying to understand it in its context and in its time, and then not dismissing it, but taking it seriously, mm -hmm. uh, but understanding it really uh, in a way that Christians have often failed to appreciate. Uh, so. Let's look at some of the, the Bible passages together that are what some have called the clobber texts, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. All right, that, that are used to sort of clobber gay people over the head with mm. the Bible says and therefore. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to begin? 
Well, maybe let me first just set this up a little bit by saying, and I so appreciate uh, you know the context you just offered, that I, I think often people uh, worry that to go back and, and re-look at, at these texts uh, would amount to looking for loopholes. That's and, right. And I don't believe in looking for loopholes. <laughs> I think if the Bible tells me to do something difficult, then I need to do something difficult. Yes. But I, I believe that context matters. Yes. And we know this as Christians. Um, when we read a passage that says that women uh, have to be silent in church, we typically then have a historical conversation about what did Paul mean by silent? What was going on in the church that might have caused him to say this to yeah. these women? And what does that mean? And you know, very few churches today would require women to immediately be silent when they walk in a church. I think most of us would think that was horribly sexist. Or to wear a hat. Or to, or yes. not to cut her hair. Exactly. Or not to wear jewelry. Et cetera, exactly. et cetera, yes. Uh, similarly, when we look at, uh, you know, in the Gospels, tax collectors are repeatedly yes. referred to as, you know, terrible sinners for some reason. But we understand historically there were practices going on at the time, mm -hmm. and it's not the fact that they were collecting taxes. It's what the tax collectors of the day were known for. Yes. That's why they were being yes. criticized. I think the same thing is true when we look at these texts about same-sex sexual behavior. None of these texts are, I think, about gay people. None of them talk about same-sex committed relationships. Um, and one of the most famous is uh, in the Old Testament, the Sodom story, Genesis 19. Right. Uh, I grew up hearing God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and this tells us what God thinks about, about gay folks. Well, Gomorrah is not even part of the story that they're referencing. It's right. just Sodom. And the short version of the story is that Angels disguised as men come to visit Lot in Sodom. Lot's living there with his daughters. And uh, Lot takes them in, and the, uh, in, we're told that all of the men of the entire city of Sodom, young and old, surround Lot's house and demand that Lot release these, uh, these travelers. Uh, and the text says that we may know them, and, and generally this is interpreted as a threat of gang rape. Well, there's so much to unpack there, we wouldn't have time to get into it all. Why is this happening? What's, it's a very strange story to our modern mm -hmm. ears. Um, I think ultimately this is a passage that is about uh, telling us about uh, how Sodom viewed foreigners, uh, much more than anything about sex. But, um, but the, a, threat of, you know, a story about a threat of gang rape uh, doesn't tell me anything as a gay Christian about how God wants me to live. I mean, I think we can right. all agree that sexual assault uh, of any kind, for any reason, is a horrible thing. Right. Uh, and so, you know, that's an, an easy example of how and, these And the irony of that text is that Lot's willing to give his daughters to them as a substitute, which is even <sighs> yes. ickier, if you will, I mean, in terms of looking at that, but all of which should make us say, What's going on in that culture? Yes. What's happening in the violation of these hospitality codes that are really um, powerfully yeah, different yeah. from ours? Well, and particularly when, uh, when you look at that in light of another parallel text in the town of Gibeah in Judges yes. 19, mm -hmm. uh, where in the end, um, rather than, than rape uh, uh, the 
the traveler, they rape and murder his concubine instead. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that this is less about sexual desire and uh, more about, as is often the case with, uh, with sexual assault, um, about power, about, in this case, sending a message. It's a threat of, of violence. Well, and we know that historically, and it continues to be true today, people who conquer another people often uh, in their lust for power and their need to communicate their conquest rape the women uh, and men sometimes as well uh, in order to humiliate them. Yeah. Right. And, it's a, and, it's a, and it's a horrible thing. And these, yes. these, these are, are horrifying stories. Right. And I think the message that these were terrible cities is very yes. clear. Yes. Um, but, I don't, but these aren't stories that tell us what God thinks about committed same-sex relationships. Good. Um, you know, in Romans 1, uh, Paul tells us about um, people who turned from God, worshipped idols, and engaged in lustful behavior that includes same-sex lustful behavior. And the only place of uh, same-sex behavior of women to women. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And again, this is a complicated passage, and we could easily take oh, 30 minutes. Oh, my goodness, it's, it is. Yeah. A lot of people say, I can go with you on the Sodom story, but the, <laughs> when we get to Romans 1, that's clear. Yeah. And I think, wow, you stopped pretty fast on that's clear. Yeah. Yes. Well, because um, for it to be clear, people typically interpret Romans 1 as if Paul is talking about all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's more likely that Paul is talking about the sexual rights that were associated with idol worship at the time. And mm -hmm. I think one of the keys to that, one of the keys is uh, what comes at the end of, of that passage when he's, he's essentially encouraging his audience mm -hmm. to point the finger at someone they see as more sinful before he says, and you're just as sinful as they are. Yes. But I, another key is that he refers to the people as, um, as them, as somebody else. So yeah. he says, they're women, you know, rather yes. than women, all of humanity. Right. But again, these are complicated passages that we have to, like, there are people who have spent many years oh my, studying yes. these passages. Uh, ultimately, and there are other passages we could talk about, 1 Corinthians 6-9 and, right. and, you know, uh, the interpretation or the translation of the word arsenokoitai, which, you know, uh, the, the NIV that I grew up reading. Mm -hmm. uh, originally in that passage, it translated these two Greek words, arsenokoi and malakoi, as uh, homosexual offenders and male prostitutes. Right. And then now it translates them together as men who have sex with men. Well, that's right. different. Yes. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, there are lots of, there's a lot of analysis we could do here. But one of the things that I think is important is that we also look at um, other passages in Scripture that talk about how we should understand what sin is, how we interpret and apply mm -hmm. these kinds of Scriptures yeah. to difficult issues. Um, I think that, for instance, when we look at, well, when we look at parallel examples like how tax collectors are treated, we say, well, we know tax collectors it's about what was going on in the culture of the day. Mm -hmm. And we look at, well, the people who are engaging in same-sex sexual behavior in Greco-Roman culture, you know, when Paul's writing, what were they doing? And pederasty, pederasty, temple prostitution, these sorts of things that we, that gay people today, gay Christians say, oh, I'm out on that. You know, yeah. we're, we're not asking for, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Right. Um, but then also we look at passages like, um, you know, earlier when we were talking, I, I mentioned, 
Romans 13, where Paul talks about love, you know, as the fulfillment of the mm -hmm. law, um, or when, when Jesus is accused of uh, working on the Sabbath because he heals people on the Sabbath, and, right. and there are folks who say, well, you're, you're violating the law. I think it's really, uh, really interesting that Jesus doesn't get into a nitty-gritty argument about what counts as work on the Sabbath, which is the way the Pharisees want to mm -hmm. parse this stuff. And it's kind of the way that we tend to deal with these clobber passages. We get into these nitty-gritty arguments. Mm -hmm. Jesus backs up and he says things like, let me give you an example of somebody violating the law. Uh, David ate the bread of the presence, and this is the Old Testament passage. Uh, it was consecrated bread. Only the priests were allowed to eat it, but David ate it because in that context it made sense. Yes. He says, if your child or your ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, we know it would be work to pull that child or ox out of a well. Pulling an ox out of a well, can you imagine the work? And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But he says, wouldn't you do it anyway? And I think essentially what Jesus is saying is, God, it, well, and in fact, Jesus says, you know, the Sabbath was made for people. People weren't made for the Sabbath. I think Jesus is saying this about the whole law. Uh, the law exists for you, to help you. These rules are guidelines for you but there are times that honoring the spirit of the law may involve breaking the letter of the law. Pulling your child out of the well on the Sabbath may be a violation of no work on the Sabbath to the letter, but it is certainly honoring the spirit of this is God's day. Don't leave, leave your child in the well overnight. So let's work a little more on this idea of the spirit because the early church had to do this work too. Yeah. Right. And the Jerusalem Council uh, the first big issue that the early church had to wrestle with was whether Gentiles had to change and become physically <laughs> yes. Jews through circumcision That's right. Um, before they could actually be part of the ex an accepted and full-fledged part of the, the church. And what's fascinating about that is that there was this vigorous debate and discussion in the early church. Leaders reading scripture at each other, debating the scriptures, and doing it apparently in a, a, a way that was at times contentious, but uh, apparently respectful enough that they could persevere together. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up not all agreeing, mm -hmm. but a decision was made because it says, it seemed right to them in the spirit, mm -hmm. not to add further burdens to these Gentiles, right? And they came up with what was essentially a, a way of moving forward, saying, we're going to recognize that yes, scripture has said this, and this was part of our tradition, but this is a new day in the spirit, and we see the presence of the spirit in these Gentiles already, they're not waiting until they get circumcised before they have evidence of the Spirit. Yeah. So if that's true, can we not look at, at gay Christians and say, uh, we see the presence of the Spirit in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. The, 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 there is, it is an undeniable fact that God is at work in their lives in powerful and beautiful ways. How can the church recognize that now and say, as the early church did, Yes, we once thought this and read the scripture this way, but we see the, that God is moving in this direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, 
anybody could have said at that time, well, these Gentile men, they just don't want to make the sacrifice that God's calling yes. them to make. Yes. And people say that of gay Christians as well. You just yes. don't want to make the sacrifice. And I think it's interesting that Paul goes further than just saying to the Gentile men, you don't have to do this. Yes. He says, actually, don't do this. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ ah. will be of no value to you. Ah. Because he says you're, you'd be putting yourself back under a burden of legalism, and Christ died to free you from that. Yes. And I think the same principle applies here. Well, and, and this is part of the struggle that, that gay people have had through the years in trying to uh, have the appearance of satisfying the demands of the church. Mm. Uh, how many, um, how many gay men and women have entered into marriages with the opposite sex and had children and families and woke up in mid midlife and said, "I can't do this anymore." And on the one hand, we want to express our sympathy and our care and to recognize that God has brought children into the world and that there may have been many good things to come from these decisions on the one hand. And on the other, uh, do we really want to subject people to this further burden where Christ is of no effect uh, in that sacrifice in a sense, right? Yeah. So. And the result is when we do put those burdens on people, people walk away from their faith and we see in the case of many of the marriages that you're talking about, those marriages falling apart and people being wounded and um, the fruit of that is is bad. And right. Jesus said, you know, you, you will recognize good trees by their good fruit and bad yes. trees by their bad fruit. I think the fruit of that kind of approach we've seen now and I think right. the fruit of uh, allowing for Christ-centered same-sex marriages for people to, to be in love and commit their lives to Christ together uh, I think has been good and that should tell us something. And it's early still uh, in this regard. We only had this decision of the Supreme Court just a few years ago and so mm -hmm. in the church as more and more of us are willing to um, officiate it at same-gender marriages and we see them beginning to take place in the church and people finding their place in the church it's going to take a little while, but I think that until such thing uh, becomes a new normal in the church, uh, it's, it's still new and there's some anxiety about that. Uh, but until we cross that threshold and begin to see it, uh, we, we can't really know. And so now we're beginning to see, yes, this can be healthy. It can be a good thing in the life of, uh, of people in the church. And I am looking forward to the stories of those young people who grew up with role models of fidelity and of uh, covenant relationships and say, you know, I could be like Justin Lee. <laughs> and Justin, you are a good model for us. We thank you for your uh, love for the, the church and for uh, human beings on um, both sides who struggle with uh, how to deal with a difficult matter in the, in, in the church. Uh, but uh, we're grateful for your time with us on Good God. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.